Amen. Well, we just sang that great uh, Christmas carol, Joy to the World, probably uh, many people's favorite Christmas carol. And I thought I would uh, take a moment just to kind of give you some background. It was pretty interesting kind of researching the history of this great hymn. You may know that it was written by Isaac Watts, uh, kind of considered the father of uh, English hymns. He wrote over 750 English hymns, some of his more well-known ones, uh, at least one of the, some of the ones that I love, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, uh, At the Cross, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, uh, Come Ye That Love the Lord, and of course, A Joy uh, to the World. He was born in 1674 in Southampton, England, and raised in a very uh, godly Christian uh, family. His earliest memories were of his father's concrete convictions about religious liberty in that day. Watts Sr. even spent time in prison on two separate occasions for his outspoken nonconformist views. Kind of interesting. In that day, nonconformists were groups like Presbyterians or Baptists who, rather than conforming to the Church of England, instead uh, insisted on worshiping in a government-free church. Sound familiar? <laughs> of course, how different today's Baptists are, I might add, but in that day, they were the ones leading the way. Isaac Watts' uh, parents really saw to it that their love for Christ and his word were passed on to their son. As a child, Watts showed remarkable propensity for rhyme. In fact, it often got him in trouble with his father. Uh, on one occasion, after the family prayer time, the sober-minded elder Watts confronted his young son about why he had opened his eyes mid-prayer. Well, the boy Watts uh, creatively explained that he had been distracted by a mouse. And he said to his father, A little mouse, for want of stairs, ran up a rope to say its prayers. Well, unamused by his son's rhyming reply and wanting to discourage that kind of juvenile behavior. His father spanked him for it, to which Watts cried out, Oh, Father, Father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. <laughs> but no amount of spankings, though, could drive his love of verse, rhyme, and poetry and music from his heart. When he was in his teens, Isaac became very dissatisfied with the pathetic songs that were being sung in the church in his day. In fact, here's an example of some of the words that they sang, quote, Ye monsters of the bubbling deep, your master's praises spout. Up from the sands, ye ducklings peep, and wave your tails about. <laughs> I mean, you could see, yeah, wow, you could see why Isaac was a little bit uh, discouraged. And he was often heard complaining about senseless lyrics like that in the church. Well, his father got so tired of hearing about him complain that he said, look, Young man, why don't you just give us something better to sing? And so at the age of 18, young Isaac took up his father's challenge, and for the next couple of years, Isaac Watts wrote a new hymn for each Sunday. He became like a preacher poet, well-loved by the congregation. More than 20 years later, while devoting himself to writing a collection of hymns based on the Psalms, he came upon Psalm 98, which became the inspiration 
for Joy to the World. And if you examine the lyrics of Joy to the World, we just sang them, you'll find nothing in there about shepherds, a manger, wise men, angels, or any other common element that we normally associate with the Christmas story. And that's because Isaac Watts did not write Joy to the World as a Christmas song. The theme of the song was the second coming of Christ to establish the long-awaited kingdom on earth. And I want you to listen as I read from Psalm 98. I purposely didn't put it on the screen because I really want you just to listen uh, to these words, and you'll understand exactly what I, what was in Isaac Watts's mind as he wrote the, the lyrics to Joy to the World. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice, and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Nine short verses, but all extolling the glory of the future kingdom of the Lord on earth when the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, comes back to make all things new. Psalm 98 was a messianic prophecy related to Christ's return. I've always loved this hymn. Probably familiarity, you know, we tend to like what we're familiar with, grew up with it. Uh, but I've always thought it was really glaringly ironic because I've understood for years that it was really pointing toward the second coming. But And what a day of joy that will be. But as we sing this song, I am, I am acutely aware of the fact that in many, in many cases, the people singing it are anything but joyful. I wonder if you recognize that, the, that, that life in our human body is designed to be a blissful experience. That's the way God made us. We're designed to have joy. And maybe that's one reason that the Apostle John wrote near the end of the first century that these things I write to you that your joy may be full. I think a lot of people today in the church don't have full joy. But God made us that way. We naturally seek pleasure and avoid pain. It is abnormal for people to seek pain. Our brain has a wellspring of self-produced neurochemicals that turn the pursuits and struggles of life into pleasure and make us feel happy when we achieve them. That's our divine biological design. And joy is one of those commodities that is fully, 100% wholly within our own control. And yet, it can be one of the most elusive assets on earth. And that's because it's so often counterintuitive. See, there is a difference between pleasure and joy. 
Pleasure is, a t is, is temporary. And one of those neurochemicals that I just talked about is dopamine. And pleasure is related to dopamine, often called the reward molecule. Many addictive drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine act directly on the dopamine system. It's triggered by acts of short-term pleasure. It touches only five brain receptors. It's very addictive and always leaves you wanting more. But true lasting joy, on the other hand, is related to the neurotransmitter serotonin. And you might say serotonin is the contentment molecule. It flows when you feel significant and important and content. It's triggered by acts of long-term satisfaction. And by the way, it touches on 14 brain receptors. It's not addictive. And it really helps you be grateful for what you have. It sees the good and is marked by gratefulness. Loneliness and depression appear when serotonin is absent. Unhealthy, attention-seeking behavior can be a cry for what serotonin brings. In fact, uh, nobody knows this better than Big Pharma, and most antidepressants focus on the production of serotonin. They're called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. SSRIs increase extracellular levels of that neurotransmitter serotonin in our bodies. They create artificial, artificial chemical makeups in our brain that, when altered, by the way, can have horrifying effects. That's the reason SSRIs are extremely dangerous. If you go back and look... In recent history, most of the mass shootings, by, especially in schools, are by young people that are on SSRIs, and they stopped taking them, and their chemicals came, became uh, out of balance, and it causes them to do wildly terrible things. We live in a culture that is very, very good at finding ways to create temporary pleasure, even chemically but very, very poor at finding real joy. Because of the fallen nature of man, finding joy is often counterintuitive, like I said. When faced with tough circumstances, stress, what psychologists would call it, our baser instincts always tend to take over. Maybe that's why Thomas Jefferson famously said, when you're angry, count to ten before you speak. And if you're very angry, count to 100. Although I like Mark Twain's advice uh, better. It seems a little more realistic. Mark Twain said, when you're angry, count to four. And when you're very angry, swear. <laughs> so it uh, uh, seems more, more natural. Uh, in Isaiah, we find a prophet who was dealing with an entire nation that was depressed. They had no joy. Now, he doesn't mention dopamine or serotonin. They hadn't given those chemicals names in that day. But he sure knows how to help them find true joy. He reminds them to stop dwelling on the negative, to look to God and his covenant promises in order to find joy. Joy in the confidence of knowing who God is and what he has planned for them. So if you... If you take just a moment here. I want to give you a little background and context. We're going to come back to Isaiah again, I think, later on this month. 
So I thought it would be worth um, giving you a little bit of background. But the name Isaiah means God is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was highly educated in the Jewish faith, and he served as a political and religious counselor for the nation. According to Scripture, Isaiah's wife was a prophetess, and they had at least two sons, Shir Jashub and uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Isaiah ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah for some 60 years, beginning in 740 B.C., so we're roughly 700 years before Christ. Uh, he, he served during the reigns of kings like Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And these kings had an open-door policy for Isaiah. He could come in and talk to them anytime. But he ministered during a time of great political and spiritual crisis. The northern capital of Samaria had fallen to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And everybody was looking uh, at a desolate land, no hope for the future. It wouldn't be long after Isaiah's day that uh, Jerusalem itself would fall to the Babylonians. The future was not bright. And Isaiah challenged his countrymen to reform and repent and turn back to God. One commentator put it this way, even the highest members of society did not escape Isaiah's strong rebukes. He berated soothsayers and denounced wealthy, influential people who ignored the responsibilities of their position. He exhorted the masses to be obedient rather than indifferent to God's covenant. Talking about the Mosaic covenant there. And he rebuked kings for their willing lack of concern. It was a time with no hope. Nothing to look forward to. The underlying message that Isaiah gave to God's chosen nation was that of deliverance. Deliverance will come, he says. God's unconditional covenant made to Father Abraham with Israel will not be thwarted. Isaiah foretold the coming of the promised Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9, and the ruler of God's global kingdom, Isaiah chapter 11. He talked about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise and indeed the promise that is presented all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And yet Isaiah also depicted the Messiah as a suffering, obedient servant, Isaiah 53. His writings in the book of Isaiah recount several unique and bizarre experiences, like you remember the time when he was commanded by God to go barefoot for three years wearing nothing but a loincloth. The book of Isaiah is known for several prominent features, like vivid imagery, powerful figures of speech. Um, and uh, it's broken up into two halves. You know, there's 66 chapters in our English Bibles in Isaiah, just like there are 66 books of the Bible. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah speak of judgment and uh, uh, discipline on God's chosen nation for their nation for their disobedience. But then chapter 40 sounds a new note. Comfort, comfort ye, my people, it begins in chapter 40. And the next 27 chapters speak of the coming future kingdom. We see a lot of beautiful descriptions, for example, in Isaiah 65, which I'll come back to in just a moment. But with that background, let's turn our attention to just three verses in this famous chapter 55 of Isaiah's prophecy, found in the second half, this half of hope, when he's beginning to point them toward the future kingdom. The first thing I want us to understand is that Real joy is inevitable. Real joy is inevitable. Notice what he says in verse 11. 
so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. Now, in our Wednesday night series on how to read and understand the Bible, we looked at Isaiah 55 several weeks ago as an example of a passage that's often misunderstood. And this passage comes right in the midst of that. Uh, We didn't talk about this verse, but this is a verse that we often quote when we talk about how reading and studying the Word of God will make an impact. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it won't return void. And that's true, certainly theologically true. But in this context, he's speaking specifically about his word of promise, his word of the future global kingdom, a kingdom of unprecedented peace peace and righteousness and justice. My word that goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me void. It is inevitable. One day joy will fill the earth. God's plan of the ages is to bring his creation full circle back to the pre-fall Edenic state with a sinless creation. And this plan is as good as gold. It's rock solid. It will happen. It's inevitable. And when we really get our hands around that idea, we won't need to wait until the kingdom is inaugurated at Christ's return. We can begin enjoying kingdom life right now. It doesn't mean the kingdom's inaugurated. But we as believers in Jesus Christ are citizens of that future kingdom, and we can have real kingdom joy right now. He says, My word shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. You know, I wonder if Isaac Watts, when he wrote Joy to the World, not only was thinking of Psalm 98, but also perhaps of this section of Isaiah, because he talked in one of the verses of that great hymn about the the trees and the fields and the whole earth singing praises to God in that day. Real joy is inevitable. The Hebrew word for joy is simha. Simha means joy, jubilation, gladness. It's used 93 times in the Old Testament, uh, often translated joy. If you go to a parallel passage earlier in Isaiah, again, part of that second half of Isaiah's prophecy speaking of this future day, he says, so the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, Jerusalem, with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads and they shall obtain joy and gladness i love this last phrase sorrow and sighing shall flee away what a day that will be you ever just find yourself especially under the heaviness of our day Uh, you know Proverbs says the the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy And so we understand intellectually that throughout the ages, every generation has had horrific moments. And we understand intellectually that there have been other nations and peoples and groups and certainly Christians and, of course, the Jews themselves that have faced unspeakable persecution. But it doesn't really change the fact that right now, right here, for us, it's a heavy season. And our our hurt and pain and burden is, is pretty heavy. Do you ever find yourself just sighing and, 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 and just kind of going through the day thinking, oh, you know, that, that's going to go away someday. And the reality is, as we're going to see, it can go away right now because we can claim that joy if we only have the right perspective. 
You know, joy is a key theme in Scripture as it relates to both individual salvation as well as national deliverance and the coming global kingdom. You remember what we read in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 to the shepherds, the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great what? Joy, which shall be to all people. And if you read through Luke's gospel, when you study uh, uh, books of the Bible, when you study scripture, you find that different biblical authors under the inspiration of the Spirit tend to emphasize certain themes and concepts. And, and one of the key words in Luke's gospel is this word, Joy, you see it come up again and again. I'll mention another passage here in just a moment. But as it relates to that birth of the Christ child, joy was all over it. You go to Matthew's account of the Magi. When they saw the star, they were rejoiced with exceedingly great what? Joy. Joy is the Greek word kara. It means the experience of joy, delight, gladness, very similar to simha in Hebrew. It's used 60 times and almost always translated joy in the New Testament. Back to Luke, again, you, you continue to see this theme of joy even before the birth of the Christ child. This is Elizabeth speaking to Mary, and here Luke uses a synonym for Kara, same, same idea, joy, just a different word. And Elizabeth was about six months pregnant, we know from Luke's own account, a few verses earlier at this point, and she regarded the fact that John the Baptist, in her womb, leaped for joy that Mary, who would bear the Messiah, had come for a visit. Indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. We go to the end of Christ's ministry, a passage we look at a lot in our Sunday morning 9 o'clock series on what lies ahead, the Olivet Discourse, that great sermon Jesus preached from the Mount of Olives just a day before he was betrayed in the garden. And he says, speaking of that time when he returns, that he will say to the sheep, well done, good, or no, this is the uh, parable of the talents. He will say to those who received the talent, uh, well, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Joy is a theme for the kingdom. We see it throughout the Old Testament, and we see it in the passage in Isaiah that we're looking for. To enter into the kingdom is going to be the consummate realization of all joy. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Jesus, when he prayed for the church in the upper room in that high priestly prayer, said, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So here it is, the connection between joy that is to come globally in the kingdom and joy in our hearts, you and me, right here, right now. Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who will take the throne in the kingdom someday, prayed for you and me in this present age to have joy, His joy, fulfilled in themselves. And again, as I mentioned earlier, John would later write, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The joy of the Lord. Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is our strength. Going back to Luke, again, this theme of joy. If you remember in Luke 15, this, the lost coin, the lost... Uh, sheep and the lost son, those three parables. What does he say after the first two, the lost coin and the lost sheep? I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. That is, those who think they're righteous, those who think they're justified because they're self-justified, but they've never understood that it has to come by faith. So real joy is inevitable, and it's also universal. 
It's not selective the way it is today. Real joy is universal. We go back to the text. The mountains and the hills, as we read, shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. We're going to get to this description in much greater detail in our Sunday morning series as we see all of the changes that take place in the kingdom. There will no longer be thorns on rose bushes. There will no longer be poison ivy. There will no longer be tornadoes like what we saw horrifically in the Midwest yesterday. Uh, it'll be a universal time of peace and justice, and it'll be a universal time of joy. Uh, joy real joy is, is universally available right now, but it's also going to be universally realized and globally experienced. I want to read another passage here, Isaiah 65. Very, very near the end of Isaiah's uh, prophecy. And he's again speaking of that future kingdom. And listen to the way he describes it, beginning in chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, the reason we sigh is because we're thinking about all the bad things that have happened. The former things shall not be remembered to come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. But the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. In other words, longevity of life will return uh, when the curse of sin is held in check. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, no more invading enemy hostile lands coming in and, and taking over like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. See, we won't have to go through human institutions and human mediators and all of that. Christ will be sitting on the throne. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Real joy is universal. And in Isaiah chapter 9, we see a glimpse of this when we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy. The rest of this has not been fulfilled yet. When the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So real joy is inevitable, it's universal, but it's also eternal. There's no end to it. If you go back to verse 13, he says, It shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In other words, in the kingdom, when we see people rejoicing, when we see the trees of the field clapping their hands and those types of things, that in and of itself should be a reminder that this is the way it will be for all of eternity. You know, today when we have 
momentary times of, of pleasure, what really amounts to pleasure, not true joy, as we talked about at the beginning, we always, or maybe I'll speak for myself, often I have trouble truly uh, experiencing the fullness of that happiness because I'm always thinking, well, but the other shoe could drop, or what if something happens, or what if something changes this, you know? Things are going where, I mean, we live by faith. Our, our lives have always been by faith. I mean, every, all believers are supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. But, you know, the nature of, of ministry is such that, you know, you serve the Lord and you trust Him. And uh, we trust the Lord to provide for our needs through churches and through our ministry with not by works. And when things are good, it's just you just praise God. You should praise God all the time, but you thank the Lord, but you're always thinking, what if? And I, I often get in the flesh and I try to, outthink God and I try to hedge my bets and get in humanly speaking try to protect myself and then I just have to check myself and remind myself you know this is God's work it's God's ministry you know God's doing some amazing things right now at Plum Creek Chapel I, I don't know if you realize that but we're finishing up our greatest year in, in almost 20 years of, of history we've paid off our mortgage by God's grace we've we're finishing well in the black with taking in way more than we're using where the leadership team the board is working on trying to come up with a plan for next year to reinvest that money in missions and other gospel work and but i got to be honest sometimes i wonder what if you know what if the you know the government shuts us down again and we have to go to jail or what what if people get mad at me or i offend them or they don't like my cowboys jokes or you know what if people quit giving you know what what if what if what if right but in the kingdom someday, we won't have to worry about any of that. It'll be eternal. Notice back in Isaiah verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. To order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. This is the plan. God prophesied through the prophet Daniel that when Christ comes back to him, will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages, should serve him and notice his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed this is in the context here of uh, daniel's vision of the beasts and uh, of course in chapter two he had the vision of nebuchadnezzar's statue where we have the record of daniel of, of nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue and one kingdom after another was displacing the, the one before it but you get to the final, ultimate messianic kingdom, it'll last forever. Nothing will destroy it. You know, we talk a lot in, in, in my conferences and in some of my teachings here about the Antichrist and his coming kingdom and his dominion, and it's gonna, he's going to have it. Let's make no mistake. It's going to be a horrifying, tyrannical rule during the final seven years of Daniel's 490-year prophecy on earth, global tyranny, and it'll be dominion. But it's only seven years. It's not an everlasting dominion. It's going to be destroyed. That's the reason that Gabriel told Mary, going back to Luke's Christmas story here, that she's going to bear a child. And she said, his, He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob, what? Forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. And then we get to the fulfillment of this in Revelation chapter 21. And we read, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. John, who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Spirit, I think must have been thinking about some of Isaiah's 
great promises in the book of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 42, verse 9, we read, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you them. <clears throat> or Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Or Isaiah 64. All of these coming in the second half of Isaiah. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. And here it is in Revelation 21, Christ making all things new. But finally, and I want to go back to the very first verse in chapter 55, even though it wasn't part of our text. Never forget that real joy is freely available right now. Right now. Isaiah 55 verse 1 starts with, Ho, which by the way, makes this the perfect Christmas text, right? Ho, ho, ho. Actually, it only says ho one time. But anyway, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Real joy is freely available. That's the reason, going back to Revelation 21, when we see the fulfillment <clears throat> of these prophecies, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, this is Jesus speaking, and I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. See, entrance into the kingdom isn't based on merit. Otherwise, none of us would be there. And the temporary joy that we might muster up now has no uh, corresponding reality in the future. It's just temporal and short-lived. But because by grace through faith we can receive the free gift of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life by trusting in the one who shed his blood on our behalf, then the joy that we can have as Jesus prayed can be his joy. We can have the fullness of joy that corresponds to the ultimate joy that we will experience someday in the kingdom. In Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life, what? Freely. Putting it in a theological sense, the Apostle Paul tells us doctrinally that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. Freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what grace is. It's a free gift. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. And we can only be saved by grace. You can't be good enough, do enough uh, to get saved. You've got to recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who took your place on the cross. How do we get real joy? By believing. In Romans 15, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? In believing. In believing. If you think back to those lost coin, lost son, and uh, lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son, and it talked about how there was joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The context there is a contrast between self-righteous, pious Israel who thought they were good enough, thought they had dotted their I's and crossed their T's and they were going to be way ahead of everyone else in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you're not really just, as all, just at all. You just think you're just. right?" And he says, meanwhile, the dirty, rotten, filthy sinners, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, the harlots who recognize their need for a Savior 
recognize there's nothing good within them at all and they need someone to give them righteousness, come humbly with nothing in their hands to the cross and, and Jesus says, you're in. That's the, re that's the whole message really of, of Jesus' ministry from start to finish. He started out his ministry at the Sermon on the Mount saying, unless your righteousness is better than that of the Pharisees, you're hopeless. In fact, you've got to be perfect because it's not self-righteousness that opens the doors to the kingdom. It's faith righteousness. We are justified by faith, meaning declared righteous by faith. So there it is, four characteristics of real joy. It's inevitable, it's universal, it's eternal, and it's also freely available right now. So the takeaway is pretty simple. If we go back to that contrast that we looked at at the beginning, pleasure versus joy, ask yourself, are you experiencing pleasure or joy? Do you rely on temporal pleasure, hit after hit of dopamine, to survive this depressing world? The Bible, by the way, calls this walking in the flesh, walking, looking through the world's lens. Or does your steadfast contentment with who you are in Christ keep the serotonin flowing so that you experience true joy and confidence and contentment? The Bible calls this walking in the Spirit walking by faith. See, joy is a state of mind, not a situation. We always have a reason to rejoice, especially when we understand where this world is heading and we look forward to that coming kingdom someday. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we do thank you for this uh, reminder. And Lord, even though we sing joy to the world as a Christmas song, we want to be reminded that the first advent will be followed by the second advent. The first advent was for suffering. The second advent is for reigning. And Lord, we do look forward to that wonderful day in the kingdom someday when our faith will be made sight and all of our hopes and dreams and the things that we've longed for in your word will come true. Lord, I pray if there's one here listening that doesn't know you through your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ, that today in simple childlike faith, even wherever they're sitting or listening to this recording, they will reach out and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as the only one with the power to forgive sin and give me the free gift of eternal life. And today I trust Him for that life. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that you'd strengthen our faith, help us to abide these difficult and rapidly changing times as men and women of faith, keeping our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.